All right, if you didn't already, go ahead and open to that passage from 2 Samuel. We, uh, we do not have a casual stroll around Furman's Lake this morning, but an ascent up Table Rock. So I hope you came to do some work, as you might be able to tell from the passage that Sarah just read. This is a difficult passage for us. We're going to consider 2 Samuel 12, 15, down to the end, a little bit past what she read, uh, verse 31. We all know the uh, the, the, the basics of, uh, of a magic trick, right? Uh, there's a certain uh, sleight of hand trickery that goes into making a magic trick work. It's uh, certain darkness, there's certain distractibility. You're looking one place and the action's actually happening somewhere else and then you get to the end and you're like, how in the world did that go down? Something like this. Alright guys, got a nice quick one for you here with the world's oldest recorded trick. You take a ball, whack it with a stick, it's gone. I'll do it again with ball number two by waving over, under, and I tap it, it's gone. And the last one, all I have to do is pass the stick through the hand and that ball disappears. They all reappear back underneath the cups. How cool is that, man? Of course, I'll get rid of two of the balls, but not many people know this. This used to be an old gambling game. So if I move the cups around like this, all you'd have to try and do is tell me where's the ball. If you said it was over here, you'd be absolutely correct. Of course, I left you one over here. I even left you one underneath the middle cups. I didn't want you to get it wrong and now I'm going to show you how it's done when I say I take the ball and vanish it I don't really take the ball and vanish it you see that <laughs> then I drop it from behind the cup people think it was there the whole time so how many are under that middle cup if you said one you're correct but this ball here is already back the best thing is is when I tap twice I actually get two balls here I can put one away but it's still two with another tap like that we actually get three balls and three balls go in I tap the cup we get an orange if that's not impressive enough for you here are two more and this one has to be worthy of a like and share Super annoying, right? You're like, how in the world did that go down? So the same reality, this sleight of hand trickery, is often at play when we read our Bibles. And it shows up in passages just like the one we're reading this morning. It shows up in two, in two ways. We get distracted and lose our focus. Um, one easy illustration of this is how many sermons have you heard on David and Bathsheba or on repentance? And how few have you heard on the latter half of chapter 12, what Sarah just read? Or uh, if you get really distracted this morning and bored, just flip to chapter 13 and see what we've got next week, right? I mean, it is a thorny, spicy passage. People often critique um, expositional preaching, the kind that, that we try to do here, just kind of moving through books. Like it's uh, overly simplistic, right? It's kind of cheating one pastor actually said, like, it's, it's better to kind of weave the Bible together and uh, make these connections, and I say that's pure silliness, right? It's only cheating if you uh, don't hold your feet to the fire and actually have to consider passages like the one that we're looking at this morning. It's fairly easy to preach a passage like David and Bathsheba. It's really difficult to preach this text this morning. But also it's true actually within our text this morning. From verse 15 down to the end of the chapter, it's really easy for us to lose sight of what is the, the actual critical point that the author is trying to make. Where should our focus be? And I'm going to suggest to you this morning kind of two ways that we can lose sight of the main point. So I'm going to try to, to work in reverse order with us this morning. We could use this. So, so if you're uh, drawing the text or kind of outlining it, I want you to think of it like uh, three concentric circles. I almost called this three circles, but there's an evangelism technique and you guys would all get confused. So we'll just go with uh, kind of three concentric circles. And what we're going to do is we're going to work from outside in. So the fat pen doesn't do it very well, but kind of three, two, one. 
And I want to say, like, what is kind of the outer concentric circle, meaning what's a question that this text demands but is not its primary purpose? Then work us one layer in and say, what's another question that this passage demands? Maybe is a little bit closer to the core purpose, but not really getting the bullseye. And then we'll attempt to end with the bullseye, what I think is the bullseye of the text. So outer concentric circle, question number three, kind of working in reverse order for us, is this question. What happens when a baby dies? Told you it was going to be a hike up Table Rock. This is a spicy passage. Look in verses 22 and 23 of what Sarah just read, kind of the way David concludes this narrative. He answered, David answering, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? And then this, this verse, this is the one that's grabbed most often. Can I, can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he'll never return to me. Now, there's a natural impulse, sleight of hand trickery, to get our focus here. And it's not all um, bad. This is an important question. It's an important question uh, uh, experientially for, for us. Many of us have had this reality either in our lives or in, uh, in the lives of those that we love. The loss of a child prior to birth or shortly thereafter. And if it's a common reality in our world, it was surely a common reality in question in generations earlier. 1950 statistics would say something around 25% of children born in the U.S. died before their first birthday. Now that number is about 3% in the U.S. So you think generations past, we're asking and answering this question far more critically here. And, and, and we're even more prone to draw attention here because, frankly, the Bible doesn't say much about this question. And, and so what we say about it is, it is in some measure tentative. Because the Bible does not come out and delineate like a, a seven-step progression. In some ways, you've got to kind of make some logical deductions and conclusions. You've got to connect some dots. What can we say from this passage about that question? David, in verse 23, was optimistic. He was hopeful about the eternal state of his son. I think that's about all we can say clearly from this passage. He was hopeful. Were he fearful? Had he thought that his son was banished to hell? His conclusion uh, that he would go to his son would surely be a fearful outcome for him, which demands a question. Well, why would, why would David be optimistic about the eternal state of his son? Now, again, I want to make clear, the passage does not ask or answer that question. It merely presents it as a reality. David, David was optimistic. So whatever we suggest here, we're, we're, we're borrowing from other biblical text, and we're making some deductions and inferences here. And frankly, there are some places that there's some intramural disagreement within the church, and that's okay here because it's not clear. But what, what, why might David be optimistic? I don't think it's simply because David was a blind optimist. Like, uh, this doesn't seem, in verse 23, to be this kind of hopeful wish statement. I wish that I'll see him again. That doesn't seem to be what's... Uh, this isn't vague hope. It's seemingly a concrete fact that David is, is banking on. Um, secondly, I don't think it's because the child was without a sin nature. We saw the connection, uh, Psalm 51, 
Remember David saying he was brought forth in iniquity? I think the Bible is abundantly clear that all are born sinful by virtue of their connection to their first parents, Adam and Eve. And their fall, we all fell. So it's not that this child was born without a sin nature. And to maybe get a little closer, it's not simply that God is loving. I want you to think for a minute, what's the logical implications if we just say, well, he's optimistic because God is loving? Well, you got all kinds of problems with that claim. Because this same deduction could be made for, say, the fate of those who've never heard the gospel. Well, if our hope is purely in the fact that God is loving, therefore infants are saved, well, why doesn't that same apply to those around the world who are cut off from gospel truth? If our hope is purely in the love of God, it's got to be more than that. I don't think it's as simple as some would suggest, again, some intramural disagreement here, uh, that it's because the son had two believing parents and therefore was somehow grafted into the covenant. We're going to see later kids uh, of David and Solomon who are cut off, who are uh, seemingly uh, outside of saving faith. And we're not told anything in the text about Bathsheba's faith. And it's certainly not because God has some other plan of salvation for this category of humanity. Ultimately, it's the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that serves as a precursor for the salvation that we can all receive. But many would answer, myself included, uh, that it's because, uh, we'll say three categories, these are a little bit broad, but infant, pre-born, and those with some severe mental disabilities, we'll kind of lump all of that together, would say that that category, they are not responsible moral agents. So if you're taking notes, that's the phrase uh, I would tag you, and because we don't have time to do it, you can run some, uh, some work here, not responsible moral agents. Uh, I'd say this, I agree here, I would say this on two counts. First, that category, again, I'm not going to repeat it every time because it's kind of a mouthful. So infants, pre-born, those with severe uh, mental disabilities. Uh, first, they're not responsible moral agents because while they may commit sinful actions, they don't yet have the capacity to understand that sin is sin, right? So, so uh, your one-year-old can dis uh, disobey, can, can sin, uh, but the one-year-old can't put the pieces together that that's sin against a holy, holy God, right? And secondly, they're not yet responsible to know what to do with their sin. They're not yet responsible to know. So, so they can't call sin, sin, and they're not responsible to know what to do with their sin. They do not possess, do not yet possess, or think um, severe mental uh, disabilities may never possess the ability to repent of sin and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thus, I would suggest God and his divine providence have purposed both as preconditions for salvation, the ability to know the depth of your sin and to place faith in Christ. Thus, uh, preborn infants, those with mental disabilities, they can do neither. So I believe that the Lord will spare them for the eternal condemnation that comes not merely from being sinners in Adam, but from being responsible moral agents before God. Now, to this end, I want to make two caveat quick points of application. First, the idea of responsible moral agents. We should not make the standard of understanding so great that it requires master's level education to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I am not suggesting that we have these huge thresholds on what's necessary for a child or a teenager to know sin is sin and to repent of their sin. Certainly, you as an adult have greater understanding of that than you did when you were 12. But most 12-year-olds know that sin is sin and are responsible to place saving, to repent of their sin and place saving faith. And then secondly, I don't love the language of age of accountability because it, it suggests that there's some arbitrary line of demarcation that I don't think is super helpful. Anyone who's parented a child can attest to the fact that a child becomes a responsible moral agent at different stages of development. So the timing of when somebody's going to be held accountable as a responsible moral agent is going to differ. So to merely suggest there's some magic line at 12 that a child kind of crests and then therefore they are, I think that's outside of the counsel of Scripture. It's going to change from child to child. But that's not the main point of this passage. And we could spend 30 minutes having that conversation. But it's out here. Uh, it's in the third concentric circle. So let's zoom in one more layer, and you can pull that thread in small groups with a pastor setting up a counseling appointment. There are all kinds of opportunities for you to pull on that thread that are outside of this sermon. Second question, this one might even be spicier. Why does God allow this child to die? Ugh. Right? I mean, the, the text demands that we ask this. Why does a loving God allow something like this to happen? Not merely the eternal state of this infant that dies, but why in the world does God allow this to happen? There's a simple answer to the question again. We're kind of, oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, let's see. Well, my hand, well, maybe if I find my pen. Well, you guys know what I'm saying. All right, we're coloring in circle two. All right, we're coloring in circle two. Uh, why does God allow this child to die? There's a simple answer to the question, and that simple answer is because God said it would happen. Um, remember Sarah's reading, this is when we kind of led into it in verse 14. You treated the Lord with contempt in such a matter, the handling of Bathsheba and Uriah. So the son born to you will die. We've said many times, I've said it in that sermon. There are clear consequences for sin. So even though David's repented, even though God forgives him, this does not mean that all the consequences went away for David or for those who would come. And I think there's an interesting direct connection between the sin and the consequence, isn't there? Sexual sin and the death of the child who was born from that immorality. But isn't that answer a bit like uh, your roll of the eyes as a teenager when your parents said, because I said so, right? I mean, we can say clearly from the text that this happens because God said it would happen, but there's like a layer behind that. that it's like, but why? We want to grapple with why would God allow this to happen, particularly seemingly to, to an innocent child as a result of David's sin? Perhaps there's also something interesting that can be said for the gospel picture that's embedded here, though I don't think this is fully plumbing the depths of the question. It, it, it is a, uh, at least a, 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 an original kind of cryptic picture, someone laying down or dying for sin they did not commit. Here, seemingly one who is innocent dying for sin they did not commit. And there's certainly differences. 
Jesus Christ lays down his life. He willingly dies. Certainly this child is not in some manner substituting for David's sin the way Christ is. But we do have a a picture embedded here that's ultimately going to be worked out in the meal that we'll celebrate at the end of my sermon this morning. The meal that was given to the local church by the Lord Jesus baptized believers who are invited to remember that Jesus Christ did far more than this child ever could. He willingly laid down his life, but more importantly, he did what this child never could do. He took it up again, right? He was raised to new life. So we have, working through the Old Testament, these images that we can hang later biblical truth on. But I think more central to the passage, and as you're taking notes with this idea, um, circle two, why did God let this, this baby die? Um, that God acts with eternity in view and he wants to orient our perspective to eternity as well. God acts with eternity in view and he wants to orient our perspective to eternity as well. God's wisdom and providence can't be judged on the basis of what is seen and observed in this, in this life, in this world. It certainly can't be seen and observed fully from the vantage of, of frail humans. We don't see fully, and David didn't see fully. And I think actually from this passage in verses 16 to 23, David models this really well, doesn't he? he, he while the child is alive, he prays for God to spare that child's life. At great cost to himself, right? The text says he fasted, he laid all day, all night long. At great cost to himself, he appeals to God. And you can imagine how emotional this would be for David. Uh, if you've ever interceded for the life of another, particularly for the life of an infant, a child, even if it's not close to you, you feel this emotional pull, don't you? You can imagine how close to home this hit for David. He realizes it's his sin that's leading to this outcome. Begging God, praying. He knew he was to blame. The verse, the, the text tells us his motive. Look in 22. While the baby was alive, I fasted and I wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. I, I mean, that question's really beautiful, isn't it? I mean, kind of definitional of prayer. Who knows? David seems to have hooks for the character of God such that he's willing to, to beg God to intercede. Who knows what the Lord might do? Surely, I mean, it's going to read in between the lines. David said, he can. He could, he could change this hunger for God's hand to work in our lives, even more than David hungers for food, right? That's the connection between prayer and fasting in these circumstances. David knows that God is strong, he's loving, so in spite of what he's heard, what he can see, he asks God to change the trajectory, but God doesn't, even though David's asked, and when God doesn't, David's posture changes, doesn't it? This is the crux of the passage. The attendants feel this is weird. Verse 20, David got up from the ground, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he went to the Lord's house and he worshiped. 
went home, he requested something to eat, so they served him food and he ate. The servants are perplexed. Why have you done this? The baby was alive, you fastened and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. And then the famous passage, or the verse that we read a moment ago, David's concluding statement. And notice verse 23 is affixed to eternity. I can go to him, he can't come back to me. Thus, I've temporally done the things that I can control. I've prayed and I've interceded. So now I trust the invisible hand of God's providence. By providence, I mean this. God governs and directs all things to his appointed end and for his glory. God governs and directs all things to his appointed end and for his glory. So though David can't see that fully, He's willing to trust the invisible hand of God's providence that's at work here. He can't change the circumstances, but he trusts the activity of God. David moves forward in faith. And in verses 26 to 31, we'll tease these out more fully next week. The end of the chapter, he, he just gets back to work. He resumes the work that he was doing to, uh, to rid uh, the, the land of God's enemies and to establish peace and blessing for God's people. There's a certain finality to death that reorients David, and I would suggest us, to eternity, and that's where God wants us to live. You might remember, this is one of the most uh, frustrating passages in the New Testament to me. The Luke 13 is the introduction where people are asking him about uh, those who are killed in Jesus' day. Remember how this text plays out, this Luke 13, 1 through 5. Same time, uh, people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So people unjustly being killed. He responded, do you think the Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all perish as well. Or the 18 on, to, on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well read that passage like jesus come on man like this seems overly reductionistic and almost frustrating it's not that jesus here is insensitive to death or unaware of the mark it leaves on the world but his perspective is much bigger than this temporal life and there's nothing like death to get our attention off of this and onto that it's not that Jesus is unconcerned with the why question. Why do people die? Rather, he shifts the focus to eternity. The key is, you repent so you don't perish as well. We're creeping up on the one-year anniversary of my dad's death, uh, September 18th, so we've got about three weeks. And there are still so many unanswered questions in my mind. There's a lot of regret. There's certainty of uh, uh, things I wish I had done that I didn't get to do. And I sure wish the story had played out a whole lot differently than it did. There are aspects of our family's story that I don't like, that I don't understand, and frankly, that I never will. And here's the hard transition, is to say, that's okay, right? To, to get to the point where you say, hey, that, it, it's a tough place, right? To admit, uh, I have to live within my limitations as a person. And there are certain things this side of heaven that I don't know, I can't understand, and I'll never fully arrive at this side of heaven. 
So I learn in this temporal world to trust God with a view to eternity. Here the, the words, I mean, this is like one of the most stirringly beautiful poems that's a song that's ever been written. God moves in a mysterious way. Here's the way the stanzas read. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. And then this line, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may be with bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So, why does a baby die? Why does God allow things like this to happen? To train us to trust his providence in spite of what we can see. And then, the inner bullseye. And this is the question, friends, that the text is asking. And remember how we started this magician sleight of hand idea. It's so easy to hyper-focus there, to hyper-focus on those two questions. And they're good questions. One of the things that, that I hope you pick up, if whoever's standing behind this pulpit is doing a good job, is that they're laboring to make the main thing the main thing of the text and to give maximum time to, to, to considering what is the main thing. So we allocated about five minutes to the question, um, uh, why, uh, what happens to a baby when they die? We gave about 10 minutes to the question, why did God allow this to happen? And then I want to give the final 15 minutes to the central question, to the, to the bullseye, to question number one. And this is the question the text is asking. How is God going to keep his promises to David? How is God going to keep his promises to David? And whether it's ping pong balls or oranges, it's easy for us to, to so focus on what's going to happen to an infant when they die that we miss that the key perspective of this text is on the faithfulness of God. It's actually on what we see happening in verses 24 and 25. This is, this is where your attention needs to rest and not lose sight by what's happening over here. David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and he slept with her. She gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent a message through the prophet Nathan, who named him Jedidiah, because the Lord lives. We started um, the third part of our sermon series this week. The sermon books are here if you didn't get one already. And it's going to focus on Solomon's life. And you might think, man, that was fast. Like Saul was here and gone. David was here and gone. Um, stage of human history, people enter and exit really quickly. And in some ways, it's premature to shift to Solomon here because David's going to live on and he's going to play a role in the story. But Solomon is introduced for us in this passage. And how, what, how might we sum up, who is Solomon? Solomon is the son of the promise. He, he is, the, he is the, the son of promise. It, it's no mistake that we would read phrases like, the, because of the Lord. The Lord loves him. These hearken back to images before, like Jacob in the Old Testament. The Lord loved Jacob. His promise was to him. And here, 
another child of the promise, another one whom God loves. And the promise was made just a few chapters before. This is the thread that connects all the Samuel, all the historical narratives together. The Lord declares to you, this is 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 13, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Remember, we did the play on house. David wants to build a physical house. He says, nope, I got some descendants for you. When the time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up after you your descendant. He will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. You wonder as you're reading this passage, right? Like, is David still holding out hope that he's the one who's going to build the temple? That he's going to usher in the kingdom in its fullness? God's made it clear several chapters earlier it's not going to be him. He's going to die, all the others. But from his line, one would come who would represent God as a reigning king. As a reigning king. And this is how we're introduced to Solomon, the son of the promise, the one who would come. The big idea of the passage isn't the death of a child, nor the theological tension of how do we make sense of unanswered prayer. The focus of the passage is the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise. And if you trace the story of the Old Testament, you could rightly argue that this is the central thread of the entirety of the Old Testament, right? Long ago, Genesis 3, God made a similar promise. You remember these words, right? There's going to be a seed of the woman who's going to come, who's going to crush the serpent's head. All of the Old Testament can be tracing a line of the promise. Where's that child going to come from? This line of promise is far from straight, hence the 600 or so pages of Old Testament story. It's a jagged, crooked line. It runs through old barren couples and crazy kings. And it's now a line that runs straight through sexual sin and murder. And it's a line that will not stop with Solomon. But it will give way to a greater and better king, the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah's message that we'll sing about some few months from now. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it with justice and righteousness for now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The throne of David is now occupied by Christ, the one who rules and reigns perfectly and forever in the line of David. And though this promise will not be realized for hundreds of years after 2 Samuel 12, we get another orienting dot on the plot line of human history. How is God going to be faithful? The birth of Solomon reminds us that God is still active and at work. The same God who promised in Genesis 3, the same God who promised in chapter 7, is the God who fulfills in 2 Samuel 12. And notice, perhaps this is an encouragement to us, the fulfillment of this promise doesn't follow a logical script. It's not one you would write. In fact, one of the most off-putting aspects of this passage is the way it begins. Notice back in verse 15. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had born to David. 
the woman isn't even named. The, the woman who had lived under the implications of David's sin, she's, not, she's still Uriah's wife. But that's of no matter because her name will far outlive her. Remember in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 6, there she shows up again, again not named. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. In fact, she's going to show up in the birth book of the most famous king who will ever live. Not only is she mentioned as the mother of Solomon, but she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Davidic king. This no-named woman, the one whose life was surely shattered by David's actions, is given an eternal legacy in the birth of Jesus Christ, which leads to three quick points of application. What can we learn from the inner bullseye from circle one, given without much comment? Number one, we should expect God to get us to his destination using routes we would not have chosen. If this story is true, if the tension here is how is God going to be faithful, then when we're attempting to get how is God going to be faithful to me, to my family, how is he going to fulfill the great promises he's made to us in Christ, then I should expect, and by expect, I, I, I'm kind of parenthetically saying, we shouldn't be surprised when there's a lot of twists and turns in the story of God's providence Winding roads don't mean dead ends. Winding roads don't mean dead ends. And it's easy to kind of mentally think, man, all those twists and turns. This, this is the normative way that God works. So we should, this should give us hopeful optimism. I'm not saying this is easy. But I'm saying hopeful optimism should be the norm when we're challenged. When we encounter another twist. How's God going to come through this time? How's he going to show up now? Expect God to get us to the destination using routes we would not have chosen. Um, two, we should expect God to work through our prayers while trusting in the hand of his providence. And this is the delicate tension. We've got to thread a needle here, whatever uh, line you want to use, right? If we say, well, just trust in God's providence, then why pray? Because God has purposed your prayers. God has purpose to act through your prayers to accomplish his purposes in the world. So we pray. We intercede. David was not wrong to beg God to change the trajectory in this story. But you should intercede for these types of realities. But you should intercede in a way that says, who knows? I'm not going to lose heart when my prayer doesn't reach the fulfillment that I want it to. But I'm going to have the maturity to say, I controlled what I controlled, and I can rest in the invisible hand of God's providence when things don't go the way I want. Man, friends, isn't this kind of a mark of Christian maturity? To be able to do what's right and trust in God's providence. Thirdly, we should expect God to be more concerned with training us to look to Jesus in eternity than he is with allowing us to fixate on this life. We should expect God to be more concerned for you and me 
with training us to look to eternity than he is to gratifying our desire to fixate on this temporal world, which means often the invisible hand of God's providence is going to have to do hard things to pry your hands off of this world to get you to look elsewhere. Okay? So God's going to use some circuitous routes to get you to his destination. God's going to call you to pray and then ask you to trust his providence when things don't go the way you thought the prayers would go. And then you should expect God to, to want to center you on Jesus in eternity, your hope to be there, and not let you get comfortable in this world. I told you it was a table rocket sense. And we need things like the Lord's table to orient us there, to remind us, coming back to Jesus, I'm coming back to him. So this morning, let's spend a couple of minutes. I'm going to go ahead and invite the servers uh, to come. Uh, already reminded us in our sermon that this is for Christians. This is for those who've trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. This is a means we have of orienting ourselves to the one who did far greater than the child in this story could do. Uh, the servers are going to distribute the elements. The band's going to come and play uh, and give you some time to prayerfully reflect. And then as you think on those points of application, in just a minute, I'll come and lead us to receive the elements together.